Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Most of us want to live in a world where there is no hate-inspired violence. The question is how to do it. Suspected and Surveilled is a new report on countering violent extremism in Chicago, and it takes issue with Illinois' targeted violence prevention program. With me are two of the people associated with the report. Mohamed Sankari is, manages the Arab American Action Network's youth organization program. Thanks for joining us, Mohamed. Thank you so much for having me. And also with us is Nicole Wynn. She is an assistant professor at, of Social Foundations of Education at the University of Illinois at Chicago and did much of the research uh, on the Illinois Targeted Violence Prevention Program that the report draws on. Um, Nicole, I think most listeners don't even know what a Targeted Violence Prevention Program is. What, what is it? Sure. So thanks for having me today. Um, So the Targeted Violence Prevention Program is an Illinois-based program that's run by the Illinois Criminal Justice Information Authority, also called ICJA. And this is a Department of Homeland Security-funded initiative that seeks to train community members to identify young people and other individuals who might be vulnerable to or in the process of terrorist radicalization. All right. Uh, Now, is is that um, something that I uh, mean that, that there is a lot of effective data on that, that you can identify someone that is um, possibly an extremist? Sure. In the early days of this anti-terrorism program, folks began developing lists of warning signs or behaviors or indicators that we could use to identify potential terrorists. But social scientists have shown that that's actually based on disproven science, that the science that was used to generate those lists is actually quite flawed. And so, you know, unfortunately, we actually just have no way of um, identifying individuals who might be vulnerable to terrorist radicalization in a way that's supported by social science. So uh, what kind of things where people saying uh, are, are indicators? Is there any logical indicator? So, you know, the ones that are most heavily critiqued are the ones that equate political dissent and religiosity with violent extremism. So, for example, growing a beard, frequent attendance at a mosque, um, disagreement with Western foreign policy or outrage over U.S. foreign policy. These were things that were seen as um, indicators in more recent years. Things like distress, acculturation related stress, economic stressors Mm -hmm. um, are now increasingly seen as possible signs that someone is vulnerable to radicalization. Now, is um, is the idea with uh, this whole targeted violence prevention program largely to kind of pull things away from the security services and have uh, somewhere for people to go for expertise that is um, not the FBI in a community? Is that a logical thing to be doing? And it seems like that's a part of the equation here. So I think for us um, in this report, what we're trying to demonstrate is that we're not against communities having access to more resources, to things like soccer leagues, mental health counseling, um, and other social services that really build healthy communities. Um, I think what we're troubled by is when these services are provided through a lens of anti-terrorism mm-hmm. and when you have this increased role of law enforcement. So when it's somehow connected to law enforcement, soccer leagues seem uh, less appealing and less safe um, for children to participate in. Um, Mohammed, how does this sit with you at the Arab American Action Network's youth organizing program? Uh, I imagine if you know if people are trying to prevent violence, they already 
say, well, it's going to be a young person, I imagine? Yeah, I mean, I think that like we, we work, I work most closely with young people ages 13 to 19, and that's kind of the stereotypical idea of a person who's going to become a quote-unquote violent extremist, right? This young person who is going to go and, and, and develop an ideology to go and harm people. Um, I think for us, <clears throat> excuse me, Nicole really hit it on the head um, with what she just said is that, you know, we provide social services, we provide comprehensive programs for young people and families. And so we believe in in providing services. Uh, the problem is when it's done through and funded through a lens of, quote unquote, anti-terrorism, counter-terrorism, which is then, we believe, pulling our young people into this kind of national security state policing nexus. Um, and therein is the danger for us. Um, and that's why we're so opposed to programs like this. Well, is there a um, surveillance kind of uh, nexus that you're that you feel suspected and surveilled is that is the the name of the report? Mm -hmm. um, do you sense this surveillance? Is that uh, documented? Yeah, so I think that um, there, there's a number, there's kind of layers of it. And so um, one of the things that I think we can point to um, in terms of data is uh, looking at other programs that the Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security, and the FBI have carried out. And I think that there's a lot of good data um, in terms of the types of surveillance that Arab and Muslim communities have been subjected to through the guiding lens of these departments. So we have examples like the NYPD, massive surveillance program. We have example, examples like the LAPD's community mapping programs. And all of these were informed by policies that were coming from the top down. And so for us, when we look at this is another program in a line of long programs that's collecting data or attempting to intervene where the money and the, uh, the thought of it is coming from the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Justice, the FBI. This is another in the long list of these kinds of programs. Uh, is there any way to separate those out? I mean, is, yeah, what would be the best case scenario if you were to get funding for more services mm -hmm. from the government? Is there a way to do that that is not um, the, the one that's currently out there? Uh, is that logical? Yeah. Um, so I guess what I would say is that um, if we want to provide more uh, services, uh, funding can come from the Department of Health and Human Services, for example, without saying that this is under the guise of counterterrorism, right? Um, there's lots of funding can be provided for youth services, for domestic violence prevention and intervention, um, for social services, all of these sorts of things. And I think that the government does provide funds for that. Um, and more funds can be provided. The problem is when it's seen as a counterterrorism program. What kind of information are they collecting? What are they doing with this information? And then we get layer upon layer, like Nicole had talked about. They're looking at markers. They're looking at religiosity. And we're going down the rabbit hole now. You know, I, I was thinking about this, and I, I, I just off the top of my head, I thought probably the most prominent terrorist conviction uh, in the Chicagoland area was a, a few years ago when a Pakistani uh, man was convicted of conspiring to bomb one of the places, the newspapers that printed pictures of the Prophet Muhammad mm -hmm. in a big, long, convoluted conspiracy with India and luxury Taiba. And, um, it, it, it would never um, occur to me that, you know, it, it, the, like the typical profile would be a, a, like a grandfather type, a guy, mm -hmm. an older guy. Um, is there any um, 
anyone that has come up that you know has been successfully identified in in the community as as someone who is a suspect um through this program as far as i know the answer would definitely be no and i think that nicole you could probably speak to on a much kind of larger scale right i think you know, this, it's sort of impossible to prove this. And so this is sort of the case with FBI stings, too, is that they occur before somebody makes an attack. So it's hard to say that we prevented an attack because an attack never happened. So it's hard to say we've identified somebody who might be a terrorist before they become a terrorist. You're trying to prove something that is that is unprovable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think sort of the premise is that we're now out looking for these individuals who might become terrorists. And it sort of actually erases what it is we understand to be political violence. We just think it's these troubled individuals who lose their way. Um, And political violence is actually something that's much more than that. And I think we're also reducing political violence to radicalization, which is also, I think, something that's dangerous. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and we're talking about the new report, Suspected and Surveilled. It's a new report on countering violence extremism in Chicago, and it takes issue with the Illinois-targeted violence prevention program. Um, There is a a lot of people are concerned about white nationalism these days and identifying white nationalism. There is a section of the report on that. Um, What does it – is there an effective way to identify uh, white nationalists these days? So part of what we argue in the report is that the premise of countering violent extremism and targeted violence prevention programs is flawed in the sense that it's based on faulty social science, that we can't actually identify individuals who might be vulnerable to any kind of violence, any kind of ideologically inspired violence. So for us, sort of broadening uh, CVE or uh, targeted violence prevention to include white supremacists is sort of counter t- to the arguments, right, that we that we don't actually need to expand a flawed program. Um, and I would say that organizations like Life After Hate um, that have been trying to uh, off-ramp white supremacists from this so-called life of hate um, previously only worked with self-identified white supremacists. And that's a, a very large departure from targeted violence prevention programs, which are trying to sort of go out online and into communities to identify people who might be white supremacists, right? So that that, that is even departing from past practices of working with self-identified folks. All right. So, I mean, there is is there any kind of uh, comparison uh, for you, Mohammed, with uh, your community? Is there? I mean, I guess do people identify as um, uh, you know someone who's possibly involved with uh, militancy or something? Uh, again, I I don't think so. I think that um, the the challenge that Nicole again eloquently just said is that. When we start to do things like look at a um, someone who is upset about U.S. foreign policy and challenges U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East or other places as a precursor to violent extremism because there are violent extremist groups in the Middle East that are fighting the United States, for example, um, then it, things start to really fall apart and really get gray where w- someone who is advocating, for example – um, on behalf of uh, the liberation of Palestine or advocating on the U.S. to leave Iraq or Afghanistan um, simply because there are groups that are quote-unquote violent extremists or terrorist groups that are fighting the United States and Afghanistan, let's say. Does that then make that person um, a violent extremist? I would argue no. I would say that uh, – and I would say that those people don't identify that way either. They just have very real 
um, problems with the United States foreign policy. Uh, we talked with uh, Christian Picciolini uh, by email, and he declined to come on the show. But he thought that um, the the report was something of a smear campaign against his organization. And he talked about um, he admitted that his organization won uh, a grant from the Obama administration, but the Trump administration rescinded the award. They never got the money. Um, he stands by uh, and immersion tactics is an important part of the process of transforming someone. Um, is there, do you have a response to that? He's from Life After Hate, the mm-hmm. organization. Yes, and I think, you know, I've, I've spoken about the differences in Life After Hate's, you know, previous work and then in pursuit of Department of Homeland Security funds, sort of a change in their approach uh, to what it is that they do. And so that's sort of what we're taking issue with is that, um, number one, that they're now trying or, or the proposal said we're going to tr- now try to identify people um, using these lists or warning signs um, of potential violent extremism. And they also wrote, so they're pursuing law enforcement funds um, and they also also then included, we're not only targeting white supremacists, we're targeting those participating in quote-unquote jihadism. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's another uh, issue that is raised in the report um, is, is all of a sudden when we're talking about violent extremism, an organization dedicated to off-ramping white supremacists is now talking about jihadism. Is there a way that um, we can do violence prevention with... Um, kind of more holistically. Is there a attitude you can have? Uh, you know, we want to have communities that are um, compassionate, compassionate cities. There's a mayor's conference uh, proposal that uh, launched a, a, a center for inclusive and compassionate cities. We should be united against hate mm-hmm. and uh, we should um, be a, have a more holistic approach to this. What What would that look like? So I think there's a both and here. So I think uh, affirming some of the stuff that Mohammed had talked about earlier about providing social services and resources to young people in ways that are disconnected from law enforcement and have no connection to law enforcement. But I also think, for example, if we talk about gang violence in Chicago, of course, providing economic opportunities, after school opportunities for young people um, can help reduce gang violence. But unless we address issues like the economic contexts that drive gang violence, we're never going to solve the issue of gang violence in the city. So if we don't address uh, school closing, school closings, um, the disinvestment in communities, we're never going to solve the issue around gang violence. So we have to have an individualized approach, but also a structural approach um, to solving issues around violence. Uh, what are the, the upshot of the report is you have some recommendations and and it is stop funding this program, stop fund, defund, defund T, uh, TVPP. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> is, is there anything else that you want? Yeah, I mean, I think um, for uh, for the AAAN, we have, <clears throat> excuse me, we've identified a number, in addition to CVE, we've identified a number of programs that we believe are targeting our community, such as the Suspicious Activity Reporting Program and other things that we're also calling for an end to. But um, I think in general, um, the, the overarching um, theme of this, the real demand is that we need to stop viewing our communities, the Arab and Muslim communities, through a lens of potential terrorists and really start to think about what does it mean to develop healthy communities and what role can the government play in developing healthy communities. And I would argue it's one of providing resources and services instead of trying to prevent people from going down a path that they think people might be going down. Uh, 
When you tell people uh, that there is such a thing as a TVPP program, um, what it, do people have a general reaction to that? I mean, most people don't know that this thing exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, um, our, the young people at the AAAN um, that I had spoken about before, we've knocked on over 800 people's doors. Uh, they've held two community town halls that have had uh, you know, t- a total of over 500 people at them where they talked specifically about the targeted violence prevention program and other programs around racial profiling. And I think just to speak directly about the response from our community, there has been years and years and years of mistrust um, of the federal government and other surveillance programs just because of the experiences, the very real experiences that people have had. And so when we say to our community members that here's another program, in general, the response has been that's not all that surprising. And we don't really believe in engaging with this, just like we didn't believe in engaging in these other programs before. Mohamed Sankari manages the Arab American Action Network's youth organizing program. Nicole Wynn is an assistant professor of social foundations of education at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and she did much of the research into the Illinois Targeted Violence Prevention Program that the report draws on. And um, if people want to see the report itself, it is at the American Friends Service Committee website. Yes, and it'll be uh, at 5 o'clock today. It'll be on the StopCVE.com website as well. And uh, we've talked and emailed with four of the people uh, named in the report as uh, participants and supporters of the CVE programs, and um, they had some responses. Uh, Stephen Wine, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Illinois at Chicago and and did some consulting uh, with the program, uh, says um, it – he says – What I don't agree on is the allegations here of a vast conspiracy of community surveillance or ethnic and racial minorities in advancing this conspiracy. The report leaves out or misrepresents many things, including especially relevant and credible research, which should be the basis of policies in this area. And uh, he also said that it – well, I think think I'll leave it at that. And uh, do you have any response to that? I think part of what our research is trying to demonstrate and what the research of many other academics, uh, including at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU, um, has shown is is that there is actually sort of a faulty logic behind the social science that's driving CVE. So we we actually are creating um, counter social science to identify the flaws um, of those programs. I don't think I don't think. we think that there's a conspiracy happening. We think that, you know, people believe that CVE is an effective way to counter terrorism. And we sort of question the pre- the premise and the logics that are used to, to sort of justify the program. Nicole Wynn is assistant professor of social foundations and education at the University of Illinois and Mohamed Sankari from the Arab American Action Network. Thanks for joining us and talking about the report uh, the, that's called um, Suspected and Surveilled. And uh, it's about a new report on countering violent extremism in Chicago. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks, Thanks so much for having, for having us. us. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about our Eyes on Mexico series, and we'll visit with an independent journalist who helped establish that there are 2,000 clandestine graves in Mexico. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Recently, we've been talking with some of the participants in the Eyes on Mexico Human Rights Speaker Series put on by the University of Chicago's Posen Family Center for Human Rights. With me is another participant in the series, Mago Torres. She's a Mexican journalist, researcher, and scholar, and Mago was among a team of investigative journalists who looked into the number of clandestine graves in Mexico. They documented just under 2,000 graves. Fifteen media partners published the results. The report was republished in English at The Intercept last fall. Thanks for joining us, Mago. Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, why do we need something like this? How come a bunch of journalists had to go count up all the clandestine graves in Mexico? Yeah, well, uh, since 2006, I mean, the, the history of violence in Mexico is, is longer than that. And since uh, the 70s and recovering that part, like part of the history of violence in the country. But since 2006, we saw, we started seeing an, like a findings of clandestine graves in the country. It It uh, is at the same time that uh, the president, Felipe Calderón, started his presidency and put the army on the streets to control um for security, for the what what it was called the drug at, at, against the wars, the, the war against the drugs. Sorry, yep. and um, so year by year we start seeing more findings and more findings, and it was like the, the numbers were reported, and also finds bodies and more people also at the same time, more people looking for their disappear, for disappeared people. It's just like how many clandestine graves like graves are in the country? We wanted to know with how many people and who they are. I think it's that's, like, that's the main question that we have. Like, are their families organizing themselves looking for the disappear? Where are they? Like, what is happening in these years? So we, actually, that was the original question, how we started our investigation. We wanted to know what is happening with these bodies that have been found, how the authorities are working to identify them, and and how families are, like how that is connecting with the families. How did you do the count itself? It sounds like um, you, I don't know, do you can you can visit all the clandestine graves? Yeah, it was, it is a journey, uh, to be honest. Uh, what we decided to do, there are different um, countings of, of these. And it's very difficult to have like the real number, like the real picture of the ma- what is the magnitude of this situation but uh, what we decided to do is using public records at the state level so we sent a, a request of public records to the 32 estates in the country uh, we got responses from 24 eight estates said that they don't have uh, they don't they haven't found any uh, clandestine graves and we just started organizing the data uh, it was, and while we were working on that, we found something uh, that it's important. To thinking about the humanitarian crisis that we are having with the with the disappear and finding of mass graves in in Mexico, that is, there is no uh, common methodology to document the findings. So we organized the numbers and we organized the categories, and we had to go and check it. The investigation took us a year and a half. Oh man! And it was. Checking documents and understanding what, how each state, how each authority are calling the the findings that they are having, and what have and we wanted to know like what happens to the to to the bodies to the persons have they been identified? What we show in the map is just numbers of graves, 
numbers of bodies it's it's very it's very is there a, any kind of policy about identifying people in a mass grave or does does any state have any particularly good policy there are there are some international protocols and actually the authorities uh, the fiscalias like the state attorneys and actually federal attorneys have are have been working on learning these protocols. Uh, there are experts that have been in Mexico that ha- have worked in the uh, forensic team, of, uh, the Argentinian forensic team. The people have worked in um, former Yugoslavia and Bosnia, or like and uh, looking like that have have had similar situations and how like the protocols that have existed with this, and they have received trainings. But it's uh, that's it's a lot. And what we have heard from uh, our sources is that um, the questions, even the questions that we have had, like organizations and authorities also have, how to name each kind of finding. Because it's, uh, I mean, talking about the mass graves in Mexico is, is very hard because it's not only finding bodies, but it's also fragments of bones. And, and depending on how the authorities are documenting the findings, can also be seen certain way how the organized crimes or the violent groups work. In some states, for example, we've, we, in the description, we found that like, where bor- the, the, the fragments of bones were born, like were set on fire. So it's just like, what are the challenges of identifying? And, and we think that it is important to know exactly these and what are the efforts, like the, having a, a full scope of what are the efforts that are needed to work towards finding the people that have disappeared and uh, and the actions that are needed, so it's it, it's a it's a it's a long work. Yeah, um, I, it sounds like an amazing effort. And I'm talking with Mago Torres. She's a Mexican journalist, researcher, and scholar, and she was among a team of investigative journalists who looked into the number of clandestine graves in Mexico and documented just under 2,000 graves. Uh, the report was republished in English at The Intercept. Um, I, You know, one of the heartbreaking things, uh, there were plenty um, in reading the report, uh, is one particular woman, you mentioned that there are families who organize and they go out and try to find their loved ones or the remains of their loved ones and they they don't do it. There's one particular woman in the report who found a gigantic mass grave all, all on her own and um, but her, her, her daughter wasn't in it. Yeah. It, it, that's why it's so important to have class. So what we found is just like when we wanted to know what is happening with the person that has been found in, in the clandestine graves, the first step is to know how many they are and how many people have been found. And that's how we came to, to the map. But it's, a, it's very complicated because there are families that are organizing themselves, people that are organizing themselves, learning protocols, studying law, the law, studying like, like these international... Uh, like how to collect DNA, how to protect, like to protect the the fragments that they are finding. Like they are, they ha- they are have very uh, serious training by themselves. But it's always trying to. We need to have the full map. We believe in this. We need to have the full map so people can go to to find. And that's that's a very dramatic part of this part of uh, Mexican reality. When we published our investigation, 
on November 12 last year, we did a press conference, and there were some of the of um, families or mothers, fathers that are looking for disappeared that attended the conference. And one sentence that was very strong uh, is when someone said, "When we go out and organize to to look to for the graves and find." The people, the, the people that have disappeared, we feel that we are digging alone. And with projects like these, we feel that we are not doing that by ourselves. And that was something very important that we wanted to do with investigation. It's a journalistic investigation, but we wanted also to, to help to, to, to give a tool from a lot of other possible tools that help families in this way. Is the new administration in Mexico more interested in, in looking into this and, and documenting it? Uh, there is, I know the human rights ombudsman cited the report basically um, talking about the, the, the country of, of clandestine graves. Um, are they interested in helping that person who is alone not be so alone? Well, um, it, it has been said, yes, um, but the government has started three months ago, and we have, at least what we document in our investigation is from 2006 to 2016, 11 years, and um, I think we have to wait to see what happens in reality, and that's our experience, and maybe I'm too skeptical, I don't know. Uh, but the there's a national commission for the search of the people that have disappeared, and we under, like some organizations have approached to us and how we are going to start collecting data together. And that there are these questions, like how can we start collaborating and put like all the efforts together to, to work towards this? But I think it's a still a journey, and the magnitude of the problem is is very big. Actually, um, our our investigation of mass graves is part of a bigger project that is called uh, "Donde van los desaparecidos?" Where do the disappear go? And here we are we are publishing different investigations. But the second investigation that we publish is the story of this uh, young guy who was able to escape from a drug cartel that from like who was kidnapped and, and and put in forced labor for drug cartels. And that's another reality. The mass grave shows one, just one part of how, uh, uh, how people disappear, but there's also searches in life. And that's important. Like there are different dimensions. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a work that has to be done in so many layers. So we are seeing just the first three months of the, of the government, uh, the work that is started indicates that that is going to happen. That they are going to put a lot of efforts on on working uh, towards finding the disappear, but it's hard. To you know, with. Uh, one other thing that surprised me in reading the report, and I think it sounds like surprised the researchers, was that the graves you, you would expect if you were going to bury somebody, you would bury them far away from everybody else. But you found them everywhere by that were really close to people in people's backyards in uh, by high schools by, you know, in urban places. There's yeah. in, uh, that, you know, it's mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, our original idea was to get to be able to cross information with other data that exists, but we didn't have uh, geolocation. So we only were able to look to locate uh, uh, to municipal level, 
And that's how we identify that uh, the, the cities, the capitals of the states that were, where graves were found. Um, but yeah, it's a reality. It's, it's everywhere. And, and we document up to 2016, the two more years that we know that a lot of other graves have appeared. And um, not have appeared, but have been found. Because the other thing is hard to know when these uh, clandestine graves were done and if also if they are being reused. And the lack of having a very strict documentation of the findings by the authorities is hard to know if one grave that maybe they registered in 2010 has been reused in 2012, for example. So it's it's very complex, and it's just one of the efforts to from journalists to collect this information or to put together this information, um, even though it's the, it should uh, be the authorities' responsibility. I'm talking with Mago Torres. She's a Mexican journalist and researcher and scholar. She was among a team that looked into the number of clandestine graves in Mexico. You can read the report in English at The Intercept. And I wanted to mention your Spanish language website. Uh, give the website address there again because it's um, kind of a beautiful website. Yeah, people. thank you. It's a triple www.adondevanlosdesaparecidos.org. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I want, didn't want to mention one thing about violence against journalists in Mexico, which is so high. Um, I noticed there was another journalist killed on Friday, uh, a radio journalist uh, who yeah. was not far from Arizona in Sonora. In, Sonora, in the state of Sonora, yeah. And um, it, it's, um, that's the fourth this year. This is crazy. Yeah. Yes, that's another thing. And it's um, – it has been, it has it has been for a long time and uh, we journal, I, I live in the US I work with Mexican journalists and I have uh, even living from here and um and what journalists in Mexico are working towards is having like more organized and find the problem in Mexico with violence against uh, journalists is that the the percentage of impunity that the cases have that it's like 99% of impunity in the investigation of the cases. And that impunity, what he's saying is anyone can do whatever they want because they were, they're not going to be consequences. And it sounds like any kind of organized crime thing can kill you. It's, it's not just, This person had recently been doing reporting on smuggling, but I was talking with San Juana Martinez who wrote about pedophilia in the Catholic Church and got threats. And I was talking with somebody else. It could be anything. Yes. Yes, that's a that's reality. And as it has been happening in the U.S. of thinking about collaboration and how collaborations in, among doing investigative uh, journalism in collaborations, other in, uh, journalistic in, uh, initiatives doing collaborations, that has been also important in Mexico. How journalists organize, work together, and and as this has happened in different countries, is like if a, a voice is put in silence, we won't let that happen. Like the 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 work has to be visible, and yeah. 
Mago Torres is a journalist, researcher, and scholar, and she was a participant in the Eyes in Mexico Human Rights Speaker Series put on by the University of Chicago's Posen Family Center for Human Rights, and she documented, helped document the 2,000 clandestine graves in Mexico. Thanks a lot for joining us, and good luck in the future. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll have Global Notes, our look at international music, and we'll talk with Catalina Maria Johnson about South by Southwest. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and it's time for Global Notes, our look at international music. Catalina Maria Johnson is here. She's a music and culture writer. She's the host of Beat Latino on Vocalo, and she is just back from South by Southwest. Hey, Jerome. It's great to be back. And wow, it was a South by Southwest for the history books. What was so great about it? You know, something's happened in the last few years. Um, it's gotten a, kind of back to its gritty soul, its gritty original soul. And I don't know if it's these times, you know, which have made everybody a lot more political. But there was kind of, some people might say a high point. Some people would say a low point a few years back when there was an orange Doritos stage. And uh, then after that, it and everybody's like, it's gotten corporate. and But it seems to have recovered its roots. So there's just a lot of music, as always, and a lot of discovery, a huge international scene. I mean, whether it's Latinx or African, there were like five incredible African showcases from Afropop Worldwide and OK Africa. So it's really uh, become a place for uh, the world tribe. And how did you like the Black Pumas, the group that we have been listening to here? Well, we started in Austin, um, and they're an, an Austin band led by Eric Burton and Adrian Quesada, who we know from Grupo Fantasma and Octet Soul Sound. And they're putting together this retro soul psychedelic Texas kind of thing. <laughs> it sounds great. That's Black a, they've Pumas. got a great Keep them sound. On, on the radar, and they're just starting out. I think only have two singles out, I, I, and people are very excited about what's happening. Tell us about somebody else you saw. Well, uh, here is a very, again, a surprising international star. You may think of country and blues as a very U.S. kind of musical product, but this singer is from Bristol, and so UK touch and it's yola walk through fire divide I'd give all my gold and silver 
just to get to the other side. Your love is like a rescue vessel, carries me through the night, through these flames of destruction. I know you're gonna make it right. I know, I know you're gonna save my life. We're listening to some music by South by, from South by Southwest, and that is Yola from the UK. Hard to believe, and uh, she could have sold me on Tennessee Nashville. or whatever. You know, <laughs> she she's terrific. She's got a uh, she's completely got that down. Yeah, and uh, just a powerhouse voice, and yet uh, something that uh, that's different. Um, and a beautiful presence. I saw her in a church because, you know, South by the entire city just sort of um, surrenders to the music. So whether it's bars or clubs or pubs or corners or churches, <laughs> there's music everywhere. Well, that's terrific. That's Yola. And uh, I saw some of her videos on the screen and they were terrific, too. Yeah, beautiful presence, beautiful voice and a very well-crafted, textured country western rhythm and blues uk kind of yeah, sound that is a well-produced thing uh-huh. uh, that's going on it's there. dan auerbach so yeah uh-huh. uh tell us now i think this next artist uh ambar lucin new jersey uh she was one of your favorites uh, one of my favorites new jersey based um but the the story is really that this was a happenstance that i was walk really like trying to kind of kill about 15 minutes of time and walked into a nearby uh palm the palm door which was across the street from where i wanted to be in 15 minutes and was stopped in my tracks by this voice and this very uh lovely young woman she's 18 um who taught herself to play the ukulele the piano and uh the guitar Dominican, Mexican-American, Amber Lucid. I think she's going to really set the stages on fire. And she sings uh, mostly in English, but inserts the Spanish seamlessly. And this is a letter to my younger self, Amber Lucid. from New Jersey. That's fantastic. Yeah, Dominican, Mexican-American. Um, just really very talented. And she had the room captivated. It was yeah, a, she sings with authority. She sings with authority. Uh, and yet she's not like a huge dramatic presence. 
on stage, but she's so powerful uh, somehow, so charismatic. Well, that's the joy of South by Southwest, it isn't it? You, you, it's a, you roll in and kill time, and you find your favorite thing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's hard not to. I mean, you can't go two steps in any direction without running into some great music. But I went a lot more than two steps for the next music. So um, besides what happens in Austin, there's what happens... It, in Austin or South by Southwest proper, there's what happens around it, including at Willie Nelson's ranch. There's the Luck Reunion, <laughs> which happens, um, it's about an hour away, and I just I had to go. I had to go see what the Luck Reunion was like, and I ran across a lot of music that was wonderful, but also just a general amazing vibe. Um, the tickets run out. It's a, it's a, it's kind of a South by Southwest thing to try the Luck Reunion, and I ran across a really gritty retro rock Philly band that I loved. This is Low Cut Connie. Cut Connie, and uh, they they they've got some considerably high energy tunes. Mm-hmm. I looked at the, their uh, videos on the web, and they are amped up. <laughs> yeah, it's a very you know Jay Lee Lewis kind of like vibe too. They, I mean, he stands on the bench on the piano, jumps, gets punk, but uh, really rootsy, really gritty. And you have to think this is happening on a ranch. There's five stages. The music was great. There were little um, altars to uh, musicians that have passed. It's a large space, all kinds of people. It was a really beautiful energy at the Luck Reunion, Willie Nelson's Ranch, something to do as if you didn't have enough things to do (laughs) at South by Southwest. Did you get any FaceTime with any presidential candidates? Because they were all there. It was like a mini (laughs) Iowa there for a second. No, I didn't run into Beto or anybody, but... uh, Elizabeth uh, Warren was there. Senator Klobuchar was there. Everybody oh, no. was there. No, they, 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 I guess they, they weren't. They weren't hanging at the right places. They weren't hanging at the luck reunion. That's all I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, What's our final but, step? By the way, yeah. speaking of presidential, I, I, uh, Barack Obama put one of Low Cut Connie's songs on one of his playlists. So an ex-president did, did like Low Cut Connie, too. So yeah, got the Barack go. Obama seal of, of approval. stamp of approval. Uh, where's our final step here? Well, our final step is in Cuba and in Austin, but coming to Chicago, first week of April. Old Town and the Hot House are having this band, this artist, Sima Funk. Now, Sima from Cimarron, which are enslaved African persons that fled and created their own communities. So Sima Funk from Cuba, hard to describe, but very funky, kind of Afrobeat, very Cuban, and talk about high energy. This People were not, you know, 
I'm sure they shook parts of their body they've never shook before. <laughs> this is Seema Funk and coming to Chicago. Llegas haciéndote la pilla y cuando yo ataco te espantas. Estoy pa' formarte de sorten y tú estás en la bobería. Mira muchachita responde que estoy pa' tu casa la mía. Ay, ¿cuál es la guara si tú no vas a cenar? Seema Fun coming to the Old Town School of Folk Music on April 3rd and Hot House as well when they're in town. They sound they seem like a ton of fun. They are. I can promise a night of non-stop sweaty dancing. <laughs> all right, so I'm glad uh, you enjoyed South by Southwest. It was all good. It, it really was. It's a, it's a special time. There's just uh, so much love for music and the arts that you just feel by being there. I mean, and... Uh, Good people. I I love music and uh, certainly love experiencing a city that has no, like I said, surrenders to the music for five days. Like just nothing else matters. Catalina Maria Jensen is a music and culture writer. The host of Beat Latino joins us for Global Notes, our look at international music. You could follow her on social media at, at Catalina Maria J, and you will feel like you get to go to South by Southwest every once in a while. <laughs> Uh, so great to see you, Catalina. Thanks, Jerome. Great to have uh, Thanks. Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to talk about a new book from Yale professor Jason Stan- Stanley. His book is called How Fascism Works. We'll check that out tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. And Mike Gilmore and Colin Ashmead Bobbitt for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Tra piquito, 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 tra pi